already. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 26. And we're going to continue through our... So I'm going to pick it up in verse 9. And of course, we left off with Paul in the arena at Caesarea before Agrippa. And really, he's only there just because he's being called upon for entertainment purposes more than anything. And, but Paul is giving his testimony. He's giving his recounting of how he came to the Lord. Agrippa's a very knowledgeable man in the things of Judaism, and he knows the law, and he knows it well. And Paul's pleading with him, and he's putting his case forward that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And so he's talking, he's talking to him, and he's, he's getting into the real heart of his message now. And in verse 9, he says, And I very thought with myself, that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death. If you take a notes, I want you to underline the word they. When they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. It's verses like this that make it clear that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin council. When he would arrest these people and bring them before the council, he's going to go on and say that he compelled them to blaspheme. And, and so they would torture these people. And then they would put them to death. Paul had been instrumental in the death of Stephen, and we all read that when we went through. And a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that Paul, that, that Stephen was the only one that Paul had to deal with in his memory after he became a Christian, something that haunted him, that it was just the death of Stephen, not so. Paul just said that it was many people that he had persecuted and consented unto their death. And I want you to think about that for a moment, you know, we tend to think of Paul as just a, an apostle, a, a holy man. And he was. He was all those things. He was a great guy. He was a, just blessed of the Lord and had been given so many revelations. But think of the things that he had to carry around with him, not unlike some of us who maybe not to the same degree, Paul was a murderer of the worst sort. He purposely sought out people who were Christians and people who had made a claim to faith in Jesus Christ and then persecuted them and then had them put to death. Only to later, as he comes to knowledge of Jesus Christ, have to deal with that very situation in his own life. And we've all done that. We've all had to deal with our past problems. Some of us deal with them better than others, but I hope tonight that we're going to find that there's really one way to deal with it, that you can put those things to rest. And I think that that's why Paul was able to move on in his life. Not that he ever forgot, because he's retelling the story now. So there's a time for our testimony. There's even a time for talking about the things that maybe we've done in our past. There's a time for that. We don't want to dwell on those things, but we never want to forget those things because we want to be able to point to Christ as the one who delivered us from those things that others might find deliverance also. Look at verse 11. He says, And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. 
In the previous two verses, Paul said that he had caused the incarceration and death of many Christians. And here he says he punished them in every synagogue that he went to. In every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. How did he do that? They would torture them. It's not unlike the Inquisition during the time prior to the Reformation. That the Inquisitions went out and, and they would find people who didn't agree with them doctrinally, you see, most of the time over transubstantiation, which is the communion, whether or not the wafer actually becomes the body of Christ. And they would compel these people to blaspheme. And if they didn't say what they wanted them to say, they would torture them to make them say what they wanted to say with their sole intent of putting them to death. This is what they did. And Paul says he was, he was a member of that. He punished, you know, he, even going after them into strange cities. After Paul's conversion, though, his love and devotion for Jesus Christ ultimately leads himself to be rejected by his own people. And the Sanhedrin council, which he had been a part of, actually winds up condemning him as a heretic and ultimately to death. And his conversion actually winds him up, of course, in Rome, where his martyrdom becomes a reality, even in his own life. In like manner, unlike, or not really unlike Paul, I've seen many, many people, after having been converted, go through the process of trying to right the wrongs, you know? This is what the Bible calls fruit that is meat for repentance. And it's something that people get a, a, a really twisted on. I mean, a lot of times they don't even understand it. Paul states in Acts 26, 20, he said, you know, that there, there has to be that fruit of repentance if it's going to be genuine. I find it hard to believe that any true born-again believer, anybody who's really been born again, had their mind, you know, renewed and filled with the Holy Spirit, who doesn't somewhere inside want to write the things that they've done, who wants to reconcile those things and at least come to grips with those things and try to make amends for it somehow. It's not because you're told to do it, but it's the Spirit of God that dwells in us that compels us to do it. You know, we just sang a song, In the Arms of Love. And in, in the chorus, he says, Holding me still. You know, holding me still. You know, Paul said, it is the love of Christ that constrains me. And I love the word constrained there in the Greek because what it means is, is to be put into a cattle press. And anybody who raises cattle, and, and uh, Sherry does, we know her, she raises, they, they, you know, when they have to administer medications to, to cattle, they put them in this press. It holds them still. And it holds them still. Why? Does it hurt them? No. So that they can administer to them what needs to be. And that's the way the love of Christ is to us. But I've seen so many people who want to right that wrong. Turn with me, if you will, because it reminded me as I was going through it of the story of Zacchaeus. And you probably know this story, but it's in Luke 19. And I'm going to start in verse 8. And of course, you know, there's a song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He clumped up in his, you know, and, and, and he, he just wanted to see the Lord. I want you to get this about this man. And Zacchaeus was not a good guy. Zacchaeus had defrauded a lot of people. Zacchaeus had a lot of things in his past. 
But he wanted to have an encounter with Jesus. He, you know, to the point where the crowd was around him, so he climbs up in a tree just to get a glimpse of him. Jesus sees him, and of course, you know the story. Jesus says, come on down, we're having lunch. I'm coming to your house. And so Jesus goes there, and, and he just shares with him. And Zacchaeus stands there, and look at it, verse 8, it says, And Zacchaeus stood. He stood up after he had heard. He'd been in the presence of Jesus. He stands up and he says unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. I love that. I love that. You notice, you don't see Jesus telling Zacchaeus what he ought to do. You notice that. He doesn't say, here's what you, now here's what you need to do. He doesn't give him the list, you know, because that's not what Jesus came to do. Zacchaeus believed. He simply believed. And it was his belief that motivated him to do the things that needed to be done in his life. To reconcile some things that he had done wrong. It seems within the church of Christ today. That all is expected is for one person or, or anybody to just simply make a confession of faith in Jesus. And somehow that magically makes them a Christian. I want you to hear me out on this. Do not get me wrong. I know that throughout church history, you know, many have erred from the faith trying to mix grace and works. It doesn't work. You know, you try, Jesus said it's like trying to put new wine in old wineskins. It's just going to bust and they're both going to be spoiled. You can't do it. So that's, that's, that's really a heresy in reality, to mix grace and works. It's all grace. It's all about God. It's all about Jesus and all that he did. But so often, it, it is a mixture in many churches. And of course, the emphasis being upon works. Here's what you need to do. Here's your list, you know, of the things that you need to be taken care of. And so there's many false Christians really today who simply work and do because they believe that that's what's expected. And these are those that Jesus referred to in Matthew chapter 7. And I want to cover this with you because I think it's important. I think it applies to the text. Look at Matthew chapter 7. And it's very familiar to you guys and, and those of you listening who listen to me. And we've been over this before, but it's important that we go over these things again. Look at chapter 7, verse 20. And, of course, Jesus talking about the issue of those who are working to please him. He says, wherefore, by their fruits... Ye shall know them. Before we go on, I, I didn't put this in my notes, but I want to throw it out to you again. If you come to an orange tree, what do you get? Oranges. If you go to an apple tree, you should get apples. And if you go to a Christian tree, you should get Christians. So often we think that when he says, by their fruit you shall know them, we think he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And no doubt, if you're genuinely born again, those things will be evident. Grace, love, peace, mercy, long-suffering, meekness, temperance. You know those things. They're going to be exuded from you. You can't help it because it's the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But the fruit of our lives as Christians 
is other Christians. And I know people take offense sometimes when I say that. Me and my wife was, was going over this even today as I was talking my study. I said, it amazes me. Over the years, I've been in ministry. I've been preaching for over 35 years now. And I've been on radio for so many years. And it still amazes me that when I challenge people, have you ever led anybody to faith in Christ? How upset people get with me, even people who listen to me all the time. And they get defensive. Don't get defensive. I'm not picking on you. I'm saying, check your fruit. Listen, there's nothing, there's no more purpose that we have in life than to bring people to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What a joy it is to be an instrument in the hand of God to lead somebody to Jesus. To watch them move from darkness to light. Man, that's a blessing. You know what it does? It strengthens your faith. Because now you know that God is using you. You're a tool in the hand of the Almighty. That's why it's important. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. Listen, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you're taking notes, underline the words, Lord, Lord. This is what they were saying. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Now that sounds like a Christian to me, doesn't it you? Here's a person who calls him Lord. Here's a person who prophesies. Here's a person who has cast out devils. I don't know how many devils you've casted out. I've had one experience in my whole 35 years. But these were doing things that seemed to be the earmark of someone who is genuinely saved. But they, here's what he says. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. And if you're taking note, underline the word never. He doesn't say, I knew you, now I don't know you. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Oh, whoa, wait a minute, Doug. You're saying that prophesying, these people prophesied, they were casting out devils. And then, of course, in their opinion, they were doing many wonderful works. Like what? Well, they were probably feeding the poor. They were probably doing the things that they thought would please the Lord. What did Jesus call it? Iniquity. He called it sin. Whoa. How can that be? I mean, I want you to think about this. For me. How can that be? It's actually quite easy. Paul the Apostle in Romans 14, 23 will go on to say that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So even the seemingly good things, you know, let's face it, is feeding the poor wrong? Well, no. That's fine. Is prophesying wrong? Well, no. But when those things are done in order to gain favor with God, the Lord calls it iniquity, calls it sin. Well, then what's the difference? Well, there's plenty. Today, there's things being done in the church in the name and for the name of Jesus Christ that are just wrong. They're wrong. Everything from weight loss programs. I've, back in the 80s, there was the way down that was passing through churches and and then this lady who started it turned out to be a heretic. You know, she didn't even believe that Jesus was guiding totally teaching stuff that was totally wrong. She knew how to lose weight, 
but she also didn't know how to be saved. And that's scary. But they do all kinds of stuff. They got weight programs and recovery programs and, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and all kinds of things. The problem with them and the reason that they're wrong is because they seek to use techniques and methods that are devised by men to bring about a spiritual result. And all they really end up doing is creating people that never really know victory. True victory is found only in sola Christus, Christ alone. It's only in Jesus. True regeneration is found only in sola Christus, Christ alone. True recovery from anything is found only in sola Christus, Christ alone. Time would not permit me to list the hundreds of people that I could name and still know who have been delivered and recovered from the hand of the devil from every kind of sin you can possibly imagine. I've seen it. How? Oh, they came in and they heard the gospel and they fell at the foot of the cross. It was that simple. They believed. They really believed. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's a simple thing, gang. But so often we miss it because we put the cart before the horse. So often we think that if I just start doing good things, you know, that that's going to prove to people that I'm a Christian. No, listen to me. It comes about as a supernatural thing, but it looks very natural. When a person believes, really believes, you guys walked in here tonight, and you for, took no thought. You, you know I'm telling you the truth. Listen, you took no thought when you sat in that pew, did you? you did, and here's what I mean. None of you felt it. You didn't turn around and go, I wonder if that thing's going to hold me. You didn't test it. You didn't shake it to see if it would rock or anything. You just what? You sat down because you believe wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly that it was able to keep you up, to not let you fall. So you just plop down in it, you know, and that's good. You had faith in it. That's what belief is in Christ. It's, it's that total surrender to everything that Jesus Christ has done. And when that happens, that's when regeneration of the mind happens. Be not conformed to the world, Paul said, but be renewed in your mind. Be renewed. We've got to get away from looking at the things that people do, and we need to focus on what they believe. Because right belief produces right doing. It's not that we have to do anything but when I am walking in the Spirit of God and I am living a life of gratitude for all that Jesus Christ has done because He's done it all, then I do by nature, second nature, what I cannot do in my flesh. I've heard people, and I've been playing music for years. I've been a guitar player for many, 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 many years. And most of the time, most of the time, and I got another guitar player, most of the time, you can close your eyes, put a blindfold on, and you can just do it. If you've been doing it for any amount of years, you can do it. Why? It's second nature. 
Now, some people might look at that and go, ooh, that's pretty impressive. But to us who do it, we're going, I've been doing it so long, I can do it blindfolded. And you, and you can. Why? Because it's second nature. It's the same way when a person's born again, when a person genuinely has a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do they do good things? Well, sure they do. Sure they do. But not for the reasons that many people think. We're not trying to earn the favor with God. We have the favor of God. I'm not trying to earn his love. I have his love. Whether I do it or not, I do it because it's the, the spirit of God and the love of Christ that constrains me to do it. So I'm doing it out of gratitude. I'm not trying to earn anything from the Lord. And when I stand at that day, whatever crown, if I get any, whatever I'm able to drag out, I will cast at the feet of the one who deserves it. I'm not going to stand there and go, Lord, Lord, did I not do this in your name? That's what they pointed to. Didn't I do? Matthew 7, Christians. That's a scary place to be because they're not really Christians. Three types of people in this world, gang. Write them down if you don't know them. Them that are. Them that ain't. And them that ain't but think they are. That's Matthew 7. That's a scary place to be. And so often, we have gotten away from Sola Christus. We've gotten away from Christ alone. I don't care what's going on in your life at this moment. What is plaguing you? I want to ask you a simple question. Paul asked this question to the Corinthian church. He said, search yourselves, brother, whether you be in the faith. Do you really believe? I, I asked this to a young lady many years ago, and she listen to me, and she, she came up to me, and she goes, are you trying to convince me that I'm not a Christian? I said, no, do you feel like you're not a Christian? Because anybody who's walking in the Spirit of God is not going to take offense to what I'm saying. Paul the Apostle asked the same thing of a whole church. Search yourselves, brethren, he said, whether you be in the faith. Do you really believe? Or are you looking for something else to supplement? Listen, there is nothing else. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Even Paul the Apostle, when he was pleading with the Lord about his thorn in the flesh, which we have no idea what it really was. We can speculate, but we don't know. It might have been something totally off the, that we had no idea about. But he sought the Lord three times, and the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you. Jesus is enough. I don't care what the plague is. I don't care what the addiction is. I don't care what the sin is. Jesus is enough to those that believe. Do you believe? That's really what the question is. You know, there's two words used in the Bible for the word belief. It's not in my notes. I want to give it to you for free. Very familiar verse. You all know it. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You contrast that with James. And James says, you believe it, that there's one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. In the book of James, that word belief means to acknowledge with the mind that something is true. But what Jesus is talking about in John 3, 16, is that belief of the heart. I heard an old preacher say one time, and I agree with him, that most people will miss heaven by 18 inches. Because that's the difference between, that's the distance from here to here. Oh, they acknowledge in the head that, that Jesus is the Messiah. What they haven't done is confessed it in their heart. 
They haven't really believed it. Because whatever you believe deeply in your heart will produce what you do. You show me a person who's still clinging to a bottle. And I'll show you a man who's either walking in unbelief or he thinks it's okay. Because all drunkenness shall not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what Paul the Apostle says. Galatians chapter 5. But yet so many people, listen, I know that we struggle with things. I understand that. Don't get me wrong about this. Christians struggle with those things. But we also have deliverance in Jesus Christ. And so often we just simply don't believe. And we need to put all of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We need to fall and lower ourselves to his lordship and allow him to be truly lord over our life. It's not a hard equation. It's simple. Look at verse 12. He says, Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Back in the day, when they would yoke an oxen, they would have a single ox in front of them. And, and when they were trying to teach a young ox how to do it, they would put it on there. Young oxen don't like to have a yoke put on them. And often they would kick, and of course this is a problem if you're the one behind it. And so the plowman would take a, start, a stick and he would sharpen it to a nice point. And they called it a goad. Some of your Bibles might even have the word goad in it. And he would keep that stick out front and he would keep it close to the feet of the one that the, that the ox was getting ready to kick. And when he would kick, he'd get a sharp poke. And it took him not very long to learn that, you know what, if I kick, this is going to hurt. And so he learned not to kick against it. This was Paul. Some people have speculated that it was the death of Stephen, or more accurately, it was Stephen's testimony prior to his martyrdom that had made a tremendous impact on Apostle Paul. Of course, he was Saul at the time. The Bible says that Stephen, while he was preaching, that his face shone like an angel. And the content of his sermon is moving, and it's powerful when you read it. And Paul had to have been moved by that. It was the goad that the Holy Spirit was using, you see. But Paul kicked against that. The Holy Spirit was already wooing him, already working in Paul. And Paul was finding it harder every time to kick against it. Look at verse 15. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear to thee. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. To do what? To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins 
and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Solo fide, faith alone. Paul was recounting here the very moment that he received his commission, his purpose in life. From the very beginning, Paul's purpose was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. This is what he was really called to do. He really wanted to reach the Jews, and we saw that so many times, but his real calling was to, was to reach the Gentiles. And part of that calling, as, we're, as, as, as we see here in the text, was to open the eyes of the blind. Spiritual blindness that, that he's talking about. And of course, that's affected all of mankind. From the very moment we enter into this world, we come into this world blind as a bat, spiritually. Until we receive that sight when we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God comes into a man. You know, the Bible calls him a quickening spirit. You know, Jesus makes us alive. Alive unto God. Dead to sin, but alive unto God. In his second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul said that the God of this world, talking about Satan, had blinded their minds so that they cannot see the glorious gospel of Christ, lest it would shine on them. As I've said before, a man who does not know Jesus, and more accurately, that Jesus does not know, is often blind to the truth. And you understand the world really not being that way. The, the one I have a hard time with is when a man is not blind to the truth and he still doesn't believe. I remember preaching through the book of Ephesians one time and we were talking about that. Of course, Paul wrote about it and he, he said that these were types of people who, after having been washed and have separated themselves from the contaminations of the world, if they shall fall again into that, it becomes worse than the second. You know, the second time is worse than the first. And they become like a sow who wallers in the mire and a dog who returns to its own vomit. And I had somebody who came to me one time and they said, you, you know, what's, what's he mean by that? Is he saying a Christian? I go, no, it's not a Christian. The hermeneutics, swine always represent what? Unbelievers. Dogs always represent unbelievers. So what's Paul saying there? What Paul's saying is that a person can listen to a sermon such as the one you're hearing, and they feel that prick of the Holy Spirit in their heart. And they very well may even acknowledge with their mind that Jesus is probably the Messiah. But yet they refuse to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They may even to start to attend church. They may even start to feed the poor because they think that that's going to gain them favor. They may even start to do a lot of things. See, they have been cleanly escaped from the corruptions that are in the world. Oh, they don't smoke or chew they don't go with girls that do. They've, they have stopped doing all those bad, bad things, you see. But what they haven't done is truly surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Thus, they're not born again. But they're sure doing a lot of things. And unfortunately, churches are full of them. So it's hard for me to understand how a man can have his eyes opened at least to the lordship of Jesus Christ and not believe, but it's, it's a sad thing. 
Paul's commission, his purpose, was to open the eyes of the blind and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. I've heard it said that there's basically two kingdoms in this, this planet that we have, and it's true. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There's only two governments. There's the government of God and the government of Satan. And tonight, as you here or, or those listening, you're either in one or two of those camps. You're either serving in one or two of those kingdoms. We're either serving God or we're serving Satan. There's no middle ground. There's no place to stand in the middle. Matter of fact, Jesus was probably the most radical person who has ever lived. Jesus is so radical when you think about it. When it comes to making a decision. He told his own disciples, you're either for me or you're against me. Jesus was a radical. He didn't allow anybody to stand on the fence concerning him. There was none. Why? Because there's too much at stake. You have to make a decision. You have to make a choice. Because a non-choice is still a choice. Some people say, well, I'll put that off till tomorrow. Agrippa's going to say that. Thou almost persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost don't cut it. It only counts in hand grenades and horseshoes. And unfortunately, on the day of judgment, it's not going to be an excuse. There's no almost. There's only two kingdoms. And we have to serve somebody. As Bob Dylan wrote in one of his songs. you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It's a great song. Now, when Jesus returns, and I believe that's going to be pretty soon. I think it's sad when people start making dates and start putting dates on those things, and I don't believe in that at all. But I do think that you have signs, and I do know that we have prophecy. If you're going to be a student of the Word, you need to be a student of prophecy. So many people shy away from it. I had a man tell me one time that, oh, I listened to a guy back in the 70s, and he said that, you know, and so now he's, he, he, he doesn't want to listen to prophecy anymore. I'm going, brother, that is a mistake. You know, first off, you know, it, it, it's the Bible you need to be looking at. I'll listen to a guy, but you know what? I still have my Bible. I'm going to go by it. But knowing the word, knowing the prophecies, and knowing the time in which you live, Jesus is going to be coming back. And he's going to establish God's kingdom once and for all upon the earth. Until that particular time, Satan also has. They say he even had Jesus up on the pinnacle when he was being tempted. You remember that? And he said, he showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, and he said, this is all mine, and I'll give it to you if you'll bow down and worship me. Now think about how stupid that statement is coming out of the devil. I've heard people give Satan too much credit. Now, we don't want to pick a fight with him. We understand that he's a pretty powerful angel. But let me tell you what he's not. He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He's not everywhere at the same time. He has to walk to and fro about the earth. He is a limited being, and he does not know everything. And when he was here, and he was trying to tempt the Lord himself, he didn't even know, really, who he was talking to. He thought he was merely talking to the coming Messiah. Now think about that. Satan actually quoted verses to the author 
Think about it. Turn these stones into bread, for it is written. Jesus said it is also written. He countered it. But Satan did not know, really, who he was dealing with. He was actually talking to the one who had created him. Isn't that amazing? So what's that tell you about him? It tells you that he's not real smart. He's really not. We give him way too much credit. We think that he's way too much. Listen, I wouldn't want to pick a fight with him. Even Michael the archangel said, the Lord rebuke thee. I'm not going to argue him. But at the same time, I want to give him more credit than what he is. The fact is, is that his kingdom is coming to an end. We're told in the book of Revelation that after the thousand-year period, he'll be released for a short time. And then after that, him and everybody with him will be cast into outer darkness. The kingdom of darkness will be cast into outer darkness. And he knoweth that he had but a short time. But the return of Christ, I believe, is imminent. Paul's ministry, his calling, his purpose was to deliver people from the kingdom of darkness. To bring them into the kingdom of light and to set them free from the power of Satan that they might serve the living God. I asked a question earlier, have you ever led anybody to Jesus? I had a kid tell me one time, he goes, well, Doug, I'm not Billy Graham. Well, you don't have to be Billy Graham. I'm not Billy Graham. There's not very many of those guys. God anoints them. There's far and few between. And they're a beautiful thing to watch. But do not mistake that somehow God has placed all of it on them to win people to Jesus. You know, Jesus gave us what we call the Great Commission. Just as Paul received his commission on the road to Damascus, we received our commission before Jesus even went to the cross. He said, go and preach the gospel. Make disciples. And we see Paul live this out. He's a great example of it because what did he do? He preached the gospel to the unbelievers and then he taught the believers. He discipled them. But we've all again given that commission, every man and every woman, to preach the gospel, to make disciples. Jesus in the gospel of John, he told his disciples there, he said, even as the Lord has sent me, so now send I you. So we don't have an excuse. Your purpose in life is to lead people to Christ. Now, granted, I had a guy tell me one time, he goes, well, I've, I've tried it, Doug. And, you know, the, the, the two times that I did, nobody listened. Try four, five, six. Listen, it's not up to us to convert them. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convert them. Our job is to preach the gospel. So you offer the gospel, but offer it. So often we're afraid we're just going to offend somebody. I'd rather offend you into heaven than to appease you into hell any day. I've often told people when they first start coming to the studies or they start listening to me, this isn't, it's inevitable I'm going to say something that's going to upset you. I'm not trying to. It's going to offend you. I'm not trying to. I want you to think. I want you to read. Give me a chance. Don't just get offended and walk away. And so often we're afraid we're going to offend somebody. That's why we don't preach the gospel. What we need to, we need to. We have an inheritance. 
We have a ministry, and it's been given to us. Those of us who have placed our faith in Christ have been adopted. We're co-heirs with Christ. Thus, we have this inheritance. The Bible talks about the inheritance of the saints there in Matthew 25. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. Matthew 25, verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, and shall, he shall sit on the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth the sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. And then shall the king say unto them on the right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's us, man. If you're a believer in Christ, that's, that's the coming doling out of the, of the inheritance at that particular time. Becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God. We're told in scriptures that it's not God's will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. God wants us to be a part of his kingdom. I love the fact that Jesus said it's his good will to give you the kingdom. God wants to give you the kingdom. He wants you to be a part of it. He wants you to be a, a subject of the kingdom of God. So what, how do I do that? You know, what's, what's the process by coming a child of God and living in the kingdom of God. I think as we read, of course, in Acts 16, when we got to the jailer, remember the jailer? This poor guy. When the Lord had rocked the prison and all he thought all the prisoners had left and he was going to kill himself and then he hears the apostle Paul saying, do thyself no harm. We're all here. Ain't nobody gone nowhere, brother. Chill out. And he comes trembling and he falls down on his knees and he says, what must I do to be saved? And without hesitation, the apostle says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The simplicity of the gospel stumbles a lot of people. It does. I heard a guy tell me one time, he says, I don't listen to that. No, that's easy believism, Doug. Easy believism? Really? You think it's easy? Jesus said that wide was the gate that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in there at, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Why? Because it's not easy. Oh, the way's been made easy. Why? Because Jesus did it all. But he's asking you to believe it. Not to just assent with your mind that it's true, but to have it migrated to your heart. Paul the Apostle said, I'm convinced. I like that word. I like convinced. Are you convinced that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? Are you convinced that he lived a perfect life for you? Are you convinced that he died on Calvary to pay the price for your sin? Are you convinced that he rose from the dead? Are you convinced that he sits at the right hand of the Father and is making intercession for you? Are you convinced? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? And if you have, have you shared it? Have you shared it? Look at verse 19. Whereupon he says, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but 
showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet, some of your Bibles might say fit, for repentance. Or some of your Bibles might say that demonstrate repentance. Interesting. Paul was calling upon people to change or to turn their life dominated by the flesh to a life that's dominated by the Spirit. Now I want you to take notice of something here. The word repentance there in verse 20, it means exactly what you think it does. It means to turn completely around. 180. Turn around. It means to do exactly what you think he's saying. To do exactly the opposite of what you were doing before. And that's where a lot of people jump to. That's their only definition of repentance. But that's not what Paul's saying. I want to draw your attention that Paul said first they should repent. Do you see that? He says, and to the Gentiles, look at verse 20, that they should repent and turn to God and then do the works that are meet for repentance. You see that? Now the word repent there means to change your mind. Change your mind. Be not conformed to the world, Paul would say, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change your mind. About what? About Jesus. That's exactly what he was saying. So you understand my point. My point is, is that when your mind has been changed, when you're convinced of the truth of Jesus Christ and all that he's done on your behalf, and you're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the works that accompany repentance, the works that show that you genuinely are born again, they come naturally, but they're motivated by the supernatural. So you don't even realize you're doing it. Most of us who come to Christ, we wound up living lives that are, you know, we, we were, it's not like we sat down and went, well, I wonder what I need to do now. You know, now I'm a Christian. I had a guy do this one time. I mean, I'm not joking. You know, he gave his life to the Lord. The next, next thing I know, he made a confession. Let me put it that way. Next thing I know, he shows up at church. You know, he's wearing white shoes, you know, a white suit, Bible like, you know, big enough to choke a mule under his left arm. I'm going, bro, what, uh, what happened? You know, I mean, you look like, uh, you know, Billy Graham or something, you know. But he dresses better. And, you know, but, but, but so often that's what they, they you know, they want to do things that look different because they think that's expected. I, I remember helping a, one young man who, who felt called to the ministry. And I was glad for him. I was excited for him. He, he felt the, 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 the the call to, to pastor a church. And so I was discipling him in that. And, and he had real long hair. And, I, and he had like five earrings on this side and I think like five or six on the other. Big beard. And, and he used to wear this hat. And I have to admit the dude was cool, man. He, he rocked it. He, he made it look good. You know what I mean? And, and, and after he, next thing I know, I was up at the church. And of course, I remember I was practicing one night and I was getting ready for service and I was just going over some things. And I look up and of course our sanctuary was really long. I saw this guy walking in. And I had no idea who it was. You know, he had his coat on. And the closer he got, I went, oh my. 
And here was this guy, and he had cut his hair completely off. He took his earrings out. And he looked like a guy off of Wall Street or something. I'm going, what happened to you? He goes, well, you know. I'm a... I said, no, what happened to you? You know, listen, that's not the kind of thing we're talking about. You know, listen, the Bible says, however man is called, let him therein remain. You know, God isn't worried about what you look like. It's the content of your heart. The, the works that follow repentance, that show people that you're genuinely born again, you won't have to think about it. You won't even have to give it a prior thought. They will come naturally, but it'll be motivated supernaturally. It's that motivation that we really have to be concerned about. This was the problem with the people in Matthew 7. You know, they said they believed. They, they called him Lord. Wow. They pointed to all their good works. Didn't we do? In your name. Jesus said, I never knew you. No doubt. Paul says, look, change your mind. And then do works that demonstrate genuine repentance. So often there are people out there, and I've got to be honest, you know, they, they, they come to the Lord and, and, and they, they live a life of drugs and of alcohol and, and, and other things that, you know, whatever that thing might be. And they come to Jesus, they make a profession of faith, and yet their life never changes. They're still doing the same things that they've always done. There never seems to be any change. Listen, let's not joke around about it. Let's not lie about it. That's not genuine repentance. Listen, it's not something you can do on your own. If you try to do it on your own, you will fail. It has to be a genuine motivation of the Holy Spirit. And when a person really believes, when he's convinced in his mind and it migrates to his heart and he's born again by the power of the Spirit of God, you won't have to think about it. Your taste for these things of the world will fade away. I've had people say, well, I just don't believe in instantaneous transformation. Then you don't believe in the Holy Spirit. We want to make excuses. I don't find them in the Bible. What I see is transformation in the Bible. What I see is the Holy Spirit come into a man or a woman, and I see transformation. We see it through history. We see it through the Apostle Paul. We see it through every disciple. And yet today, we're special, aren't we? Because we're, we're just, you know, we, we've got needs, Doug. You know, our, our generation, we've got needs. We can't just, you know, we come to church and we do our thing. But, you know, that whole instantaneous regeneration thing, I don't know about that. That's a, we're, we're more progressional in that, you know. I mean, I'm intentionally wanting to be like Jesus. <laughs> oh, boy. The gospel's too simple. That's why it stumbles them. It's too simple. Believe. Really. Not just here, but here. Convinced of it. Just as convinced as when you walked in here tonight and you sat in that pew. You took no thought for it. Why? Because experience has taught you that it will hold you up and it will not let you fall. I can tell you from personal experience that Jesus Christ will not let you fall. He will not let you go. You can hold on to him and please do, but he's holding on to you and he will never let you go if you have truly believed in him. 
I'm not saying, and do not misunderstand me, that Christians do not struggle in certain areas. And if you're, if you're like that and, 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 and you're having a problem, I want to pray for you. But I first want you to question. I want you to ask yourself, do I really believe? Or did I, have I just went to church all my life? You know, if you've never listened to my wife's testimony, I encourage you. Here's a woman who sat in church all her life and did not know the Lord. And her life showed it. She lived two separate lives. Church life, her life. And she ain't the only one. Every time she's given that testimony, we've seen people come to Christ because they realize that they fit in the same category. Wow. I've told you guys a million times, and I'll say it until the Lord calls me home. You could sit in the garage all your life and never be a car. You can go to McDonald's every day and never be a hamburger. You can go to the movies and never be a movie star, and you can sit in church all your life and never be a Christian. And that's a sad thing. It's a sad thing, but it doesn't have to be that way. So often people confuse the issue of repentance with just being sorry. Well, listen, in my younger years, many, 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 many moons ago, wow, I'm, I just turned 59. I just realized, I know. I was sitting there going, you know, I really didn't even feel that. But I was talking to somebody today. Oh, yeah, and I was talking to somebody today, and I was going, yeah, I was talking about the election like with Nixon and, and uh, McGovern and and because she told me, she goes, yeah, I'm like almost, you know, getting close to 50. And I thought, oh, we're, we're then I realized I'm 10 years older than you. I just don't think that old, but I guess I am getting old. You'll have that. But many moons ago, I worked at a prison. And I can tell you from personal observation that I think every prisoner that I ever served dinner to and used to uh, you know, walk the ranges and check on every day, was sorry for their crime. They were sorry they got caught. And which is the reason why 85% of them wind up back in incarceration once they get out. We used to call it doing life on an installment plan, you know? We even used to ask them, how long are you doing? And, and some of them would even say, well, I'm doing life on an installment plan, which it means I got 10 years this time, I'll get out and I'll probably get 10 the next time. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. That's not really being sorry. In Titus, Paul wrote to him, and he was, of course, talking. He sent Titus to the island of Crete to set in order the things which were lacking in the church and to make elders. And we'll get into that when we get to that chapter. But he says this in, in chapter 1, verse 16, talking about those who profess that they know God. He says they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. In the, in the Greek, what he's saying there is that they, and, and unto every good work, that is, they wind up making every good work worthless. Why? Because it's not motivated by genuine faith. It's not motivated by faith. Whatsoever is not of faith, Paul said, is what? Sin. It's motivation. So they're never able to break free from their problems and their sins in their life. Why? They're not genuinely born again. 
They're reprobates. But in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul goes on to say that for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. There's a difference. Someone can tell me all day long I believe in Jesus. I have repented. However, if they are at home in sin, if they are at home in their past life, you're kidding yourself. You're lying to yourself. It can't happen. I've always said, you know, that any Christian, any genuine born-again Christian can fall into a pig pen. I've done it. You've done it. But only a pig is at home in it. You understand the difference? Only a pig is at home in it. Boy, when a Christian, a genuine born-again Christian steps into a sin pit, their first inclination is to get out of it. Because you realize how stupid that was in the first place. And all of a sudden, repentance is the first thing that you want to do. You already believe, but all of a sudden your heart's going, Lord, I'm sorry. And you want to get out of it. But so often people don't. We've got to get past this narrative that, you know, somebody just saying the name Jesus somehow makes them a Christian. No. I'll close with this. There is such a thing as false security. Now, there's nobody that believes in eternal security more than I do. I do believe that if you're genuinely born again, you're good. The Lord's got his hand on you. He's holding tighter than you than you're holding tighter to him. And you are on your way to heaven. Matter of fact, your eternity has already started. You just haven't transferred your address yet. But you will. Regardless of what happens. A righteous man follows seven times, yea, and he'll rise again. Why? Because the Lord is able to make him stand. I know that. But I'm talking to the people whose lives have never been changed. They're perfectly at home in a pig pen. They might be sitting at church. They might be doing, you might be feeding people down at the local food line. You know, the homeless or whatever, you might be doing all kinds of good things in the name and for Jesus. But if they're not motivated by faith, genuine belief, it will make those works of no profit, of no worth. And more than that, it could cost you an eternity. And that's the scary part. Because salvation is so easy. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, not just with your head, with your heart. Get into his word. Find out more about him. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn to me. That's what we want to do. We want to learn about Jesus because he's done it all for us. He's made it so simple. God is not will, willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. First change your mind, and then your heart will follow. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we do thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that all we need do, Lord, is to submit to your lordship. To be convinced in our mind, Lord Father, and let that migrate to our heart.
We thank you that the Holy Spirit has moved upon us, Lord Father, and given us even the faith to be saved. Father, I pray for those who have fallen prey to the false narrative that somehow if they just utter your name, that they're saved. But Lord Father, I pray that they would take seriously heart to what was said tonight, Lord. And that they would just question, make sure. Lord, your word, it, it, Paul even told Timothy, make your calling and election sure. Father, we just want to make sure. So we ask you to help them to make sure. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.